December the 5th, 2023. Let us gather together and experience the goodness of God. I'm Pastor Trey Comstock. We will begin with our scripture of the week, Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 through 9, and a piece by me entitled, Someplace Like Bolivia. Then Pastor Emily Larson and I will talk scripture and how self-care helps us through our own desolate Jerusalems. But first, a reading from Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 through 9. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, so that mountains would quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire ceases to boil water, to make your name known to your adversaries, so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you, who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways. But you were angry, and we sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We all are the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider... We are all your people. For a 37-year-old person, I probably think about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid far more than strict reason permits. Often, in meetings, I compare focusing on the wrong thing to that time where Butch and Sundance find themselves cornered, and Butch suggests that they should jump into a river far below, Sundance balks because he can't swim, to which Butch laughs at him and states that the fall will probably kill him. I also think about Bolivia, The refrain of going to Bolivia as an existential hope of a better life weaves itself throughout the film. To spoil an over 50-year-old film, they get to Bolivia and still die violently. It doesn't quite work out the way that they'd hoped. Butch and Stundance stand in good company. The same thing happens to Dorothy when she reaches the Emerald City and meets the wizard. To pull from this century cinema, Judy Hopps ends up less than impressed with her goal of reaching Zootopia, and Moana finds out that Maui may not have been worth seeking alone through treacherous waters. Sometimes we hold up these places, actual or metaphorical, and believe that all will be right when we finally reach there. God's people had their own Bolivia, coming home from exile. From what we can tell looking at the prophets and biblical scholars, a lot of work went into holding the community together during the exile. One of the common character tropes across the Old Testament is the faithful God-follower in a foreign land. Joseph rises up to power in Egypt by being faithful. Esther saves her people from the Babylonians by being faithful. Daniel survives a lion's den, while his three friends with unique names survive a fiery furnace by being faithful. 
part of how the canon of the Old Testament becomes a canon was to convey these stories to an exiled audience, to preach faithfulness, and to hold on until they could get back to their home. Our melancholy text from Isaiah 64 doesn't come from a time of warning about exile or from a time of exile. It comes from after they got back. They returned to the promised land. They got their own Bolivia. At this point, things should be great. The hopes and prayers of multiple generations and all that work holding the community together paid off with the little help from Darius I of Persia. Still, it feels like God hides God's face from them. The home that they had returned to isn't what it was. It didn't all click back into place. As it says in verses 7 through 9, There is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us to the hand of our iniquity. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember the iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people. Isaiah as a text covers a lot of history, giving us an almost real-time picture of the entire exilic journey. Chapters 1-39 through 39 cover the time before the exile, with a sense of the gathering storm that will eventually carry the people away. Chapters 40 through 55 come from the exile, so we can hear some of that work to hold the community together. Chapters 56 through 66 show us what it felt like to return to a destroyed Jerusalem. This lament from Isaiah 64 tells that story, a freeze frame of a time before they knew how the story ended. This isn't a retrospective, it's a live man-on-the-street interview. How does it feel to be back after a couple of generations? It still feels like God has turned God's back. It feels like we left our US-based problems just to die in a hail of Bolivian gunfire instead. We don't have to live in that freeze frame. We know what happens next. Nehemiah and Ezra eventually show up and get everyone deeply invested in the restoration business. Jerusalem gets rebuilt. The temple comes back. The people rededicate themselves. All isn't perfect. No earthly king from David's line ever rules again. They get passed from empire to empire. Still, history tells us that this prayer in Isaiah 64 gets answered. Things seldom appear clear from the midpoint of the story. Will it be Bolivia? Or will it eventually become what we were promised it would be? In actually living it, you don't have the privilege of flipping to the back of the book to see if your Nehemiah shows up or not. In these places, prayer and faith can mix together. We can pray the fear, the disappointment, the low moments, the hopelessness to God. These prayers may not represent a high watermark of faith, but they aren't faithless either. Standing in your own desolate Jerusalem may not evoke a hymn of praise. Carrying all that turmoil to God opens up the opportunity for that praise to come in time. So we start every Christian year with Advent. We remind ourselves of promises fulfilled and remind ourselves of how to prepare so we can make it through the end to the fulfillment of all of God's promises.
So, as you just heard in the piece, this is the very strange text with which to begin Advent. And I'd love to take credit for it, but it is the, like, lectionary uh, text. And we had just done a similar text um, uh, in Matthew. There's the Mark version, so I didn't pick the gospel. And so I picked this. Um, And it is... You know, our, our our music director Charles came in before worship. It was like, I it's not really it was not really a Christmassy thing, and so I just did, picked all Christmas music. I'm like, you're good, Charles. You have shown it. <laughs> this is why you're wonderful. Yes, that is what you should do. And this is actually a very Christmassy text. When you start to think about what is Advent, what is Advent, and why do we do it. We do Advent because we live in this middle time. And this is a text from not our current middle time. This is a text from a previous middle time where they got back and it was fundamentally terrible at first. And without that context, I agree. Like, it's just like you picked a random lament and designed it for the first Sunday in Advent. What a joy, you know, this is, you know, this is, this is why depressed people shouldn't pick Advent things. Um, and so it's not that, although, you know, I, 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 as a depressed person, I love a good lament. Uh, this is very much gets to the heart of what this season of preparation is is we are preparing ourselves to remind ourselves of promises past to thus be able to hold on for promises yet to come. That is the fundamental season. This is an incredibly apocalyptic season um, in our apocalyptic two months here at the Servants of Christ. Um, But it it is a looking back, looking forward. Why do we do the birth of Jesus every year? He was born. Like, why do we anticipate it? Because in anticipating it, it's a reminder that there was a time before Christ was in the world, and then Christ came as the answer to a prayer, as an answer to a promise. And so we live in a time where Christ hasn't come back, hasn't come back yet, so we can see this fulfillment and thus have faith for the fulfillment to come. Absolutely. That it's that remembering of the promises. It's the remembering that God was good before As they are in this time of lament, in this time of transition, looking forward to Christ who is to come, that we too may repeat this pattern, looking back at past promises of God and the fulfillment of those promises and God's faithfulness to us, even in the midst of our unfaithfulness and our imperfections um, and our righteousness, which is a filthy rag, right, in this scripture, Um, but that God is still faithful to us in the midst of that so that we can trust that God will continue to be that for us now as we look to the next coming of Christ um, in this time of waiting. My favorite part of that scripture, though, remains, and I highlighted this, I didn't highlight this in the piece, but I highlighted this in the sermon, that they blame their sin on God, (laughs) right? Look, we're all sinning because you turned your back on us. That is why we're all sinning. And you sit here and go, (laughs) you know, this is... This is not how this works. It's not how this works. This is just a bad plan. Like, this is... Yeah, 
okay, what a lovely excuse, right? Like, God turned God's back. And that's why it all fell apart. I Check the tape, because that's not what happened. This is Definitely also, not. This is a good reminder. This is a good text to remind you that you can say truly terrible things to God, and it's all going to be fine, because our ancestors did, right? We, yes. We read scripture often, I think, in this incredibly inhuman way, right? We make it so that Jesus never told a joke, um, <laughs> you know, that everything that Jesus says is super serious, even when he spits on the ground, makes mud, and rubs it in the guy's eye, right? Like, somehow that is, like, some deeply spiritual thing, or, or we make Palm Sunday not funny, right? It's a joke. He's making fun of the Romans, right? Like, yeah, man, you know, you, know, you got your war horses, and you got your, you got your treasures, and you got your big fancy people, I'm going to have a I got a donkey. <laughs> I got a donkey. I got uh, some uh, common folk and they're going to lay down their coats and we're going to vandalize some trees. And yeah. and that but it, you know, I I'm going to declare victory. Have I done anything yet? Not compared to what I'm about to do, but don't worry. I'm going to win. <laughs> right? Like, you know, some traveling home semi-homeless rabbi triumphantly enters Jerusalem. It's a joke. Not a joke in like, uh, you know, he's telling a joke on them, right? He really does win. He's making fun of them. He's making fun of that triumphal entry, yes. We make Jesus not funny, and sometimes Jesus is hilarious. It's hilarious. And we make our ancestors never wrong. Except here, they're just fundamentally wrong. Not wrong. (laughs) Blaming God for their transgressions. Blaming God for their transgressions. Acting like God, they are back in the promised land, and they're acting like, God, you've turned your back on us. And I'm like, what? That's why. So that's why the like, you know, context for this one is absolutely critical because there are times when like, you know, I, if this was from the exile, you might kind of get it. This isn't from the exile. This is after the exile. They've come back. They're and back. St- they're back. So they've gotten one of three things. Um I did this sermon both in my first language and in my second language, and I'm not sure I made total sense on this point in in language too. But like, of the three things that they think they need, they're only ever getting back two of them in the sense that they're expecting it, right? Because they think it's t- land, temple, king, right? Those right. are the three things they think that that are that of the previous era of their lives was the things they expected the, from in the promise. Right, pre-exile, right? The, yeah. the In the promised land, with the temple, and a king from the house of David. And they're going to get back two of three. Um, and they've already gotten back one. And the scale of the destruction that they've witnessed just drops them in this utterly hopeless place. And I know we're kind of making fun of them because it's a podcast and that's what you do. But I don't <laughs> actually mean to mock them because it was, we're going to talk about in the next segment, actually. It's a really easy thing to experience. But mm-hmm. it is important to point out that they are not correct. God right. did not cause them to sin. Mm-hmm. Right. This is still of their own doing, not and God's God, doing. And God hasn't actually abandoned them. Right. It just feels that way. And those feelings are very real. But this does not come from a time where abandonment is the thing that makes the most sense based on the evidence. And yet <laughs> even still... Our, you know, the, you know, neither you nor I are Jewish, but you know what I mean? Our ancestors yeah. in the faith, right? Our full the faith. The people who have come before us. Yeah. The people who have been interacting with God longer than we have, right? Right. 
uh, land themselves in a place that I think we can all recognize of actually God is very much involved in their existence and is about to do something even bigger via Nehemiah and Ezra. It just hasn't happened yet. Yes. It's really interesting that they talk about how, you know, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. You know, they talk about the goodness of God. They talk about the greatness of God. Um, They talk about the promises of God and how incomprehensibly good God is. And then in the next breath, but also we're sinning because you because turned you, your back on us, because God. Because you turned your back on us. Right. Don't turn your back on us, God. But but you're so great and so wonderful. Also, don't turn your back on us. But God didn't. But God um, didn't. And, 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 right. and this doesn't – that's what – that again, I, I, you know, both One of the these pe- things is not like the other, right? Right. This, this scripture this, kind of goes back and forth between this lament of where are you, God, and oh, God, you're so great. Your promises are always fulfilled for us. And yet, it you know, and, and the bit that isn't in the lectionary is the verses 11 through 12, no, 10 through 12, yeah. um, that make it explicitly about, the, hey, the, the Jerusalem is utterly destroyed. Right. Like, and that is, you know, clearly horrible. Um, this is why, I, I, this is where I ended up framing, I even like downloaded the script of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid to look up every time they mentioned Bolivia. It was a whole, like, it was a whole thing where, on th- you know, whatever that was, Thursday afternoon, I am sitting in my office and I, I don't even, at some point I stopped even understanding why I was doing this other than I Mandela affected a line that doesn't exist in that movie and then I have thought existed in that movie but any run th- I didn't have time to watch actually I probably did the amount of time I spent that spent I probably could have just watched the movie but I honest to god thought this would be faster it wasn't <laughs> was so I really think there's a line in that movie where they say Bolivia um I hear it's nice this time of year that's n- as far as I can tell that's not in that movie now, I first watched that movie at the ripe old age of 11 or 12. This was back in the period where I had, I've talked about it on the show before, where I had no friends. And so my uh, main source of entertainment was my dad introducing me to mildly inappropriate cinema. Um, and, and so, like, you know, and, and I, what I mean by that is, like, I'm, like, 13 and we're watching Dog Day Afternoon um, <laughs> or, we're, you know, uh, you know, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was a relevant enough cultural reference for me by the time I was 14 that when we did a dinner theater thing where we reenacted different scenes from movies, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was one I was, like, really excited to do. So by the time <laughs> I was 14, like, this was a major cultural object for me. Wow. Um, this combined with the fact that I couldn't sleep in the nineties and thus watched a lot of Nick at night really frames a lot of what, ha- what's rolling around in this really useless brain. But I Mandela affected <laughs> that is like made up fundamentally believe a thing that doesn't exist. Um, which is that in that movie, they say Bolivia here, it's nice this time of year. So if you look up, if you do a like constrained search in Google of Bolivia, I hear it's nice this time of year. I am the only result that comes back. Me saying that in a previous sermon uh, is the only time that the internet thinks that line exists. Wow. Um, So anyways, I had to read the whole script, apparently. Um, Actually, it was worse than that. I downloaded the script then, but it was like a a scanned copy 
of the typewritten script. And so then I used optical character recognition to I'm create saying, so a, could you even search it? But oh, you I, did. I, I OCR'd it. Um, and so created a searchable version <laughs> of the script. So then I could search every time they said the word Bolivia, Bolivians, like any derivation of Bolivia, any derivation of the word year. Anyways, it's just not in there. It just um, didn't exist in there. But, but it also didn't exist in the mind of the people who were lamenting in today's scripture. It was, you know, that form of Bolivia did well, not the, exist. Well, but they really... So they think they think they've they don't know about Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. And obviously, they, obviously, <laughs> um, but they think they've arrived. They they think they've gotten sold Bolivia here, right? right? Because you know, again, spoilers for this movie that I keep spoiling. It's fifty more than fifty years old. They die in a shootout in Bolivia. In right? Bolivia, yeah, right. And so God's people really like in this moment. They're like, hey, we were sold this, like, hey, let's get back there. Hey, let's get back there. All these prophets. Right. I, next so, year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem, right? Still. All of these, you know, and and we'll talk a little bit about the history of Isaiah in a second, but, like, even in Isaiah is, like, these, you know, rah-rah speeches. Like, one of the ways that the Old Testament comes together as an Old Testament, um, as, like, a, as a canon is to give them the stories, right? This yeah. is where stories like Daniel become really important and Esther. Yeah. Um, and you go way back in history to Joseph, right? This is all of this, right? And so it's, they've been pumped up, like, let's go to Bolivia here. It's nice this time of year. Um, let's get home. Let's get home. We just got to get home. Let's we're going to go get home. To we're going to go back. We're going to go back we're to gonna Jerusalem. We're going to be great. It's going to be great. Like, we're going to get our, we're going to get it back. And then they show up and like, Jerusalem is in absolute ruins. Yes. And, that that's a body blow. And what they're expressing here is this reaction to this body blow of it is actually what they need. And in time it is going to be right. But right now it is like, Hey, you told me this was going to be better. And much like the, you know, in the Exodus story, right. Where all the times they go, yeah, I should go back to Drew. I'm going to go back to Egypt. Um, right. We've talked about it. Like, Were there, not, there graves not graves enough, enough in Egypt? In Egypt? <laughs> exactly. Right? And, and so this is yet another version of this. And I, and I don't want to characterize these folks as uniquely faithless. They're just human. Right. right. And looking right. at the destruction and going, how on earth, what on earth, what's going to happen next? Well, and especially when you have a construct, <coughs> construct in the universe wherein God sits on the throne that is the temple, you now are once again face to face with the fact there is no temple. And so really good question of where is God? Yes, because if God lives in the temple on the throne and the temple is not there, then where is God? God has turned God's back on God's people then. It's easy for them to to see that. I see where that connection is. And again, in time, you do get Nehemiah and Ezra. Um, and Nehemiah is one of those like great hopeful books of the Bible that also gets really into lists because God loved the Old Testament. They love their lists. Um, but well, their lists were their stories. That's it's, right. that's your index for your storytelling, yeah. you know. And 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 so the things enough of the things come back together and they rededicate themselves and it happens right. Yeah. And this is where Isaiah, uh, in some ways, unique among Old Testament texts just covers 
so much history because I often describe Isaiah as the Dread Pirate Roberts. So for those of you not familiar with the Princess Bride, so Dread Pirate Roberts isn't a person, it's a title. Um, and so in the book of Isaiah, there are, it's longer than a human lifetime. The right. amount of time covered by Isaiah to go from Hezekiah in the 600s BC to returning in the like mid, early mid 500 like this it covers right. more than 100 years and the entire exile covers the entire exile the entire exile so and, maybe there's not just a singular author so of like Isaiah Hezekiah to return from exile it's too much and right. so biblical scholarship breaks this into first Isaiah second Isaiah and third Isaiah we just and keep it all in the same book. We just keep it all in the same book. And, and like, it's not clear. And in some ways it doesn't matter because the, the it, it's here. This is the Isaiah right. we have. This and is from the prophet Isaiah, right? We right. can say this is from the prophet Isaiah, but well, there were probably. There were probably prophets in the, and, and that's not like a dishonest thing. That's like a, there's like a school. Like right. you could think of. Isaiah, I call the Dread Pirate Roberts because I want to be flipping funny. Um, and certainly I think I am both of those things. But <laughs> this is, it is probably from the prophetic school of Isaiah. Of Isaiah. And so there was a man, Isaiah, Isaiah, introduced in the beginning of the book. And then his school kept going. Continued. After, after again, this is not the early Genesis where people live 900 years. This is 3,000 years ago where people did not live very long. And so Isaiah did not live over 100 years. Um, a similar thing we're doing uh, when we talk about Revelation in the New Testament is John probably functions in a similar way. So the books of John span at the outset outside of what's possible for one human life. And so we often think about a school of John, right? Because right. there's a consistent writing style, a consistent theological perspective, similar to Isaiah. There's a consistent theological perspective of how God works, how God's, who God's people are, right? That there is a, right. there are coherence to both the five, the five books of John and the one work of Isaiah that is divided up into three chunks. Right. And, and, and so to, it is, you can very easily call them, this is John, theological perspective, writing style, all one person's hand. No. Right. By the way, neither are the works of Alexander Dumas, famous French author. Right? right. So Alexander Dumas did not write every word of the Count of Monte Cristo or every word of the Three Musketeers. Um, and I, I love I love those books. Uh, they are, you've noticed, they're very long. Uh, he, had a, he had a school of writers that worked for him. Yes. And he supervised and whatever. And edited and put together right. into the volume. Yes. But yeah, so that, that's your biblical scholarship lesson for the day. Right. <laughs> Probably like, a school of the prophet Isaiah. <laughs> this is a school of the prophet Isaiah, not literally the one dude lived... I, my math's bad. Let's go 120 years from Hezekiah. Right. Like Hezekiah. Plus, 
was writing for that long. Right, so yeah. like not counting infancy and growing into adulthood. Right. Yeah. And so, so he's talking. an ad- he's an adult by the time Hezekiah is on the throne. A so published like, adult. <laughs> a published adult recognized as prophet. Right? right. And with access. So like he is, you know, probably in his, you know, at the youngest in his twenties. Right. The reign of Hezekiah. And so yeah, like we're talking 140, 140 year old dude is recording. Plus a hundred some odd years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, give or take. I, but so, uh, long, long way of saying, Isaiah's really unique in that way, that you watch this entire exilic journey. Yeah. You get the, like, hey, these Assyrians, these Babylonians, they're bad news. Look, look at Hezekiah. Good on Hezekiah. So glad Hezekiah stood up for those guys. Josiah, way to go, man. You're reforming. The rest of y'all, bad. This is, <laughs> this is bad. And then you see, you know, hey, we're in exile. Like, what are we going to do? Has God abandoned us? Are we going to get to go back? Oh, my God. And and, I, and Isaiah gets like, hey, we're going home. We're coming home. Heck, yeah. Let's go. <laughs> and then we're back. Oh. Oh, wait. It's not oh, the my. paradise. It's not the Bolivia that you it's, thought it was oh, going no, to no, be no, already. Yeah, right. Yeah. You've arrived at the Emerald City. And oh. Yeah. Uh, I have followed the yellow brick road. And, and the wizard is actually a guy behind a curtain. A guy behind a curtain. Or, you know, right whatever right, other yeah. disappointment version that you yeah. wanted to look at. Yeah. You know, we have found Maui. Uh, <laughs> this It's all of those, right? It is, yes. And the difference is eventually, you know, we keep going back to it, like eventually it does work out. The thing does happen. We get the new temple that stands for hundreds of years that yeah. stretches from, you know, this time period with Nehemiah through to the life of Christ. It's the same temple that, that you know, that where Jesus Christ is, is you know, yes, in, a, in, a, in a few weeks, you know, uh, uh, you're going to preach on Jesus getting, you know, taken to the temple um, as an infant and being recognized by Anna and Simeon, right? And, and it was that temple. It's that temple. I mean, Herod improves it, but fundamentally, the walls around Jerusalem are those walls, and the temple is that temple. Yeah. And the folks live in the land for hundreds of years. With the, you know, without the king from the house of David, which is part of the other way this ends up a Christmas story, um, because the answer to that part of the triad is Christ. And, but that fulfillment didn't come for 400, for 500 years, right? They land back from exile and whatever that is, five, I should know this better than I do, 539, 536. More around there. I can Google this, but I'm just You're not going numbers, to. You're the numbers guy. I know. You're the numbers right? guy. And, and, and I have failed. Um, I'm the numbers <laughs> guy who have looked at this number in the past three days. Definitely looked at this number on Sunday. Still don't have it. It's great. Yeah, it's great. I, well I, done. I don't think I got it. Sorry. Uh, but like, so they get back from exile in like 539, 536, right? right. Um, and from that moment until Christ is born in Bethlehem, there is not a king from the house of David reigning over God's people. Right. And so all of that is middle time. And you can understand why they feel devastated, even as we recognize that they are wrong. Right. In the same way that, like, 
when we have this, you know, these moments of God, why are you not here with me? Right. Uh, you're, it's, it's not true, but that doesn't invalidate the feeling. Right. Um, so, you know, the, the parable, of the starfish, right. Or the feral, the footsteps, right. We're like, you know, Oh, why there was only one uh, Set of footsteps. footprints is when so, you yeah. carried me. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So that's, so that's, Cheesy and thus I, I hate it. Um, the better one <laughs> is, um, you know, I, you know, there were two sets of footprints, and then for a while there were no footprints. What, what happened? It was like, yeah, that was the part where I was dragging you. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I don't, I don't see any footprints at all. I just see, you know, some markings in the sand. Yep, that yeah. was the bit where I was dragging you. That's the part I dragged you along for a little while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I yeah. prefer that image. You know, the other one is very. I was carrying you, and it's all very lovely and saccharine. I, you know, I prefer the image of just you know the guy bodily dragging. Jesus, drag- just like dragging you along. You know, I had someone today actually i was having a conversation about the way that the holy spirit moves in our lives and um there was the image of the sailboat and but we've got the rudder right we've got free will but you know the holy spirit when we get in alignment with god and that's what moves the sailboat and um someone that was in the conversation was an expert sailor (laughs) and they were like yeah You've got the rudder, but every once in a while, if that squall is big enough, it does not matter how big your rudder is. <laughs> the boat is going to go according to which yeah. way the ocean is going yeah. to push it. And I'm like, that's really a good, you know, image of how things work in the world sometimes and how God works sometimes is it it's sometimes we think we're in control. We're really not in control, but you know, the Holy Spirit is still at work. God is still at work. Yeah. God is still moving. God has not abandoned you. Um, you just don't have control over where that ship is going right now. And so you don't feel like you're, yeah. you and know, I, and I, and I think that, that God gets, is captaining your yeah. boat. <laughs> I think that gets at a piece of the spiritual experience that I, I think is important, that feelings are not the only piece of evidence that one should take into account yes right uh again as, as a person with depression like you you learn to be a little suspicious um of your own feelings um uh, but like that's just generally true right, right. but it's it's that poem it's that or song yeah. depending on how you encountered it first that i believe in the sun even when it's not shining right. you know god is still at work even when the temple is destroyed Right. God is still with you, even in this destruction of Jerusalem. God is still with you, even in this waiting period that we're in now, right? right. God is still there. God is still moving. Um, you know, enter your own Jerusalem destruction, whether you're looking at current events now, whether right. it's uh, a yeah, personal sure. catastrophe, whether it's, uh, you know, whatever it is, if it's, you know, children dying in wars overseas, whether yeah. it's whatever your own personal tragedy is, God is still there, um, even when we you know don't feel god but we but we can relate to the lament right in well that's those times. Yeah, yes and that's that the is, relatable part of the scripture is that we can relate to that we lament. can relate to that lament we can see ourselves in it because we too live in a middle time yes Right. And fortunately, God is big enough to handle our tantrums when uh-huh. we say, where did you go, God? Yeah. <laughs> I'm right here. I did not go anywhere. I didn't right? go anywhere. 
check the tape. I'm still here, right? right. Like, that's not how that works. It's pretty miraculous that you stayed together during the exile and that uh, you got to come back, even though you deserve to go there in the first place. Right. Yep. Uh, That's a thing that happened. Um, I get that you're not, you know, really in a place to see that right now, but that's a that's a thing that happened. Is uh, yeah, no, uh, I wonder why that happened. That you stayed together, and that's it was very hard and kind of miraculous. And then, you know, that you talk about like I, I just constantly remember your transgressions, and yet, uh, you're back. So. Uh, no, no. So maybe no. So, so maybe no. <laughs> maybe recognize the goodness of God even in the midst of what is not, not perfection. What is yeah. not perfect, and that, that you know this is a a process told over time, and you know Christians, you know we think we have all we think we flip to the back of the book, but at the the back of our book is a story of like okay it's gonna it's gonna get worse before it gets better, and that is. I don't know when we lost that concept, but at some point we keep losing. I guess we keep losing it. I guess that's the point is we keep losing it. Um, We keep, you know, we think all of our problems will immediately be solved in Bolivia and maybe you're just petty criminals and it was never going to go well for you, (laughs) even in Bolivia. No matter where you were, it's just not going to go well. It's not going to go well because you're just uh, petty criminals and uh, that, you know, romantic, maybe very good looking petty criminals, but uh, petty criminals nonetheless. And so, you know, sometimes Bolivia is very much of our own making. (laughs) But yeah, I, you, you know, this thing that may, you probably, for a lot of them, they'd never seen, they'd only heard about the grandeur of Jerusalem, the glory of the temple, and it's all, you know, destruction. Gone. It's all gone. Yeah. And so, you know, we are, all of us are in some ways just unreliable narrators of we feel things that are real to us in our feelings, but do not necessarily correspond to the facts on the ground. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't feel these things or shouldn't express these things. This gets recorded in scripture and it's not, and then God zaps them. That's just not what happens. God's bigger than that. God can handle our temper tantrums. God can handle our, you know, pouting as well. (laughs) But when we get in those places of this is hopeless, this is, this is Bolivia, this, this is shout out to the nation of Bolivia. I'm, it's fine. It's a lovely country. It is a lovely country. It's one of my favorite places. This I like Bo- it there. Bolivia as viewed through the eyes of Butch Cass and the Sundance Kid, a film set in the nineteen, you know, the eighteen hundreds, filmed in the sixties. But anyways, um, you know, you think it is when we get in those places of we look around and go, this is terrible. God is nowhere. We did we did a poll of I did a poll of the congregation. Um, and my students at the uh, our community development ministry of do you think the world is a better place or a worse place than 1970? And I pe- <laughs> I don't I, I picked 1970 kind of arbitrarily, um, but I, I picked you know 1970. And both groups, a group of largely older adults and a group of teenagers, both said that the world was better in 1970 than it is today, except that. Fewer people die of starvation now than they did in 1970. Now, that's mm-hmm. not a zero number still, and that's deeply tragic. 
Um, but still, way fewer people die of starvation now. Way fewer people die of preventable diseases like smallpox and malaria. Um, and we have, you know, far better medical tools. Um, even with the recent spike in warfare, fewer people are dying from warfare. You, you know, maybe the past couple months, I, you know, these numbers aren't perfect, right. but like, there's less, generally speaking, there's less warfare now than in 1970, which is you know, in the middle of the Cold War, right? right. Um, more people can read now. All like, you can Go down a long list of all the ways the world are better. And yet, we look around and maybe think the world might be worse. We're just not always a reliable narrator. We can still lament to God about it. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, maybe we're not as reliable uh, as we think we are. And so that is we are we are there, right? We can't we can't always see the goodness of our own times, right? We so we maybe would, don't don't trust our collective memory and just look around and look for the goodness of God in our present time, in our present as times. well as and and yeah. the reality and presence of God in the midst of pain and suffering. Yeah, um, and we have this promise promise that at some point it won't be like that, and so at some point. It won't be like that. And that is why we do Advent, is that we can remember. For, a lo- for 500 years, there was not a son of David reigning over God's people. Mm-hmm. And then one night in Bethlehem, not in a stable, not mentioned, um, a baby <laughs> is born, um, an innkeeper, not mentioned. Not mentioned. <laughs> uh, Donkey, not, not mentioned. Not mentioned. Right, but like... Silent Night, definitely not. Definitely not. Silent, not in there. Don't know There's why we think that. nothing about childbirth that is silent. So a 16-year-old young woman <laughs> having an infant. It's not... Uh, that baby can't be silent. It's fully human. He's got to clear the crud out. He's got to cry. Anyways, yeah, airways, yeah. Airways. Anyways. Airways, real important. Um, all of those things happen. Right. And that middle time lasted 500 years. Yes. Right. And so, yeah, it's been 2,000 years since Christ ascended and the Spirit descended. And we can look around, and especially the past couple of years between a couple of wars and a pandemic, can feel like the world's just fundamentally falling apart. And so we can look out on the world, and, and, and many of us rightly have, feel like this is the desolated Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And yet, all those promises got kept. And so this one just might as well. <laughs> On the other side of the break, we're going to talk a little bit about how do you do that? How do you, how do you maintain hope and functioning in difficult situations? We're going to talk, and, and, and you know, certainly I am maybe not the best equipped person to talk about that. We're going to talk about self-care. Um, and its role in the the being a Christian business, but also its role in uh, the restarting a church business. And so we'll be back with our segment, How to Restart a Church, colon, Self-Care Edition. We'll be right back. <laughs> and we're back with a segment that we call How to Restart a Church. Uh, this time, as I said, to your mind 35 seconds ago uh, is about self-care because this is one of the things about restarting a church is that at some point it is going to be the desolated Jerusalem. 
Like it is, I, I almost, this is what the sermon was almost about. And then for whatever reason, I, you know, pulled my punches and talked about, uh, maybe because it just felt a little inside baseball and yet here I am doing it anyways. So whatever. Um, but you know, I talked about your first year teaching, which can also feel like the desolated Jerusalem. I, but at any time you're doing a thing that is fundamentally hard and, you know, breathing, you know, being a part of God's process of breathing new life into a church is really hard because you have to, you know, go into this thing and often you're hearing the stories of what it was like once and it's very clearly not like that now. And, mm-hmm. and, and anyway, so at some point, like you may well end up feeling like you have arrived in the desolated Jerusalem. And, well, and, Go ahead. And collectively, pastors are not great at self-care anyways. Right. Sure. Um, but I think as as a denomination in the United Methodist Church, this post-disaffiliation time can feel like a desolated Jerusalem to certain congregations because it's not what it once was. Yeah. Or because they're looking back at the good old days or because they're remembering a time, you know, back in the 70s or the 50s or that, you know, when, you know. Well, yeah, Kennedy we, was president, and that's yeah, and, when and, and, things and that's were when fantastic this here. That's when this built. So for us here, like the 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 collective memory of, you know, I and and I, and I'm sure it was an amazing moment, right? Where this building was only two years old, and you know there was a real sense of they were doing something important, and every it wasn't just the sanctuary was full; every room was full with people just packed in here. And that was the only time that this building was full. Right. And so you can walk through and, you know, see etched in the walls this dream of what this place would be. And then now it rains in my office. Right. It does now, by the way, rain in my office. It was raining <laughs> the, you know, on Thursday when I was writing the Butch Gassing the Sundance Kid piece. Um that I can now audibly hear the dripping. Oh, it now audibly drips in my yeah. office. Speaking of desolate Jerusalem, desolate Jerusalem and rainy offices right. and the things that you don't think you're going to have to deal with as clergy, but you do because yeah. that's life and life is hard and church life is exceptionally hard for many, many people. I know there are a lot of ordinands that go into this thinking that this is going to be, as a second profession, uh-huh. that this is going to be an easier profession than the one that they came from. And I go, that's hilarious. Yeah. Um, so my, my version of why don't we go to Bolivia is, well, that wasn't on the seminary brochure. Right. You know, you have no doubt I've, you know, we were, you know, covered. I think, you know, we're covered in muck or we are, you know, digging out a playground or whatever, um, or I've landed myself (laughs) in the hospital again. And, you know, this is like all the seminary brochures have these like, you know, wonderfully diverse pictures of people, but they're all in like nice clothes and smiling and pretty robes. And none of them are scooping the gravel out of a playground or no, we were scooping in gravel. Scooping in gravel after removing all the weeds. All the weeds, And getting out the, the, Installate uh, the poorly installed initial yeah. layer that was in there and putting in a 
better yeah. layer and but uh, yeah, yeah. or and that I've was been covered word. in pigweed before like there's right. all sorts of ridiculousness that happens that was not on the seminary it's brochure. not on the seminary brochure. we could write a book of the things that seminary didn't teach us that you have to learn like fixing water heaters or leaky roofs and sound I, kn- I know and- that I know that I became a licensed daycare director in the state of Texas yeah and I had to at one point fully internalize the child protective surfaces uh, specifications for daycare playgrounds because yes. just someone needed to know that things that and you didn't so, know you were gonna need when think, you were in seminary how to and, remove a hawk from a building there was yep. a hawk in the church once that was yep. fun without losing any fingers right you I gotta lose yeah, that, any fingers that yeah. helps i've spent a lot of time in drop ceilings running ethernet cable yeah. Um, I, 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 this actually turned into a weirdly therapeutic activity for me of like, <laughs> oh, uh, you know, if when, I, when I'm feeling really down, I'll just run some Ethernet cable because you always need more Ethernet cable run. Um, yeah. Our uh, technician in a previous church, Ken Diesterhoff, and I, uh, my last Sunday, we had to fix something in the ceiling and it was kind of like a weird moment because we'd spent so like a, like a, like a beautiful moment of like, Ken, we need to go into the ceiling together one more time because we've been <laughs> in the ceiling so much. I was the lead pastor of that church. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, you know, had been in the ceiling dozens of times or the strange amount of breaking and entering that you've had to yeah. do into parishioners homes yes or yeah. you know strange yeah. situations that you end up in in right. ministry that are not on the brochure they're not on the brochure and a lot of it can string together where especially when you and this is a lot of ministry these days especially in a post-pandemic world united methodist church we had this you know big old disaffiliation palooza and so you know there are very few ministry jobs out there that are not in some ways church restarting jobs or new church start jobs like you know even in like kind of traditionally solid churches because, and we're, you know, hopefully we're going to have uh, my good friend, uh, Pastor Reagan Seton, on the show. And, and, and she's going to be able to give a wonderful perspective on that um, as someone who's leading a church that's had to deal with a lot of this kind of disaffiliation conflict. And yet here, a year later, is here, is still here and thriving and the like, you know, trauma that comes with that, right? Like a lot of these jobs are essentially walk into something that is really unhealthy. And be weirdly tasked with how do you make this thing healthy again? Right. Or just significantly hard in some way. Either the budget doesn't go or there's not enough room or space or volunteers or, you know, name the thing that makes it hard. But ministry is not easy. Ministry is hard. It is a hard thing. And from the congregation side, right, you know, I have deep, deep abiding sympathy and compassion for the folks here at Servants that, you know, saw the thing really start to come off the rails, right? And and remember when it was what it was and, and be here um, when it was, or certainly what it was three years ago um, before the Spanish service got going. Like, it, that is a deeply painful and traumatic thing to happen and so again you you can also then walk around the halls of your church and it looks like you know the the desolate the you know the desolate wreckage of jerusalem of you know 
it, it rain you know it rains on the inside and yeah. we can't afford to fix it and the chapel is freezing because there's no heat all of these things are real um you know i you so know what what do you do what do you yeah. do in those times when you're in the desolate jerusalem when you're in the leaky office when you're in the the tough parts of ministry when ministry gets hard for a season or for a year or for however long that may be tell me when it gets easy (laughs) right how do you but how do you refill that cup you know you can't give from an empty cup right so how do you refill your cup or my I, i went home for thanksgiving and my mom noticed i've been in a an interesting season of life, shall we yeah. say? <laughs> you know, may you live in interesting times. Yeah. Um, I have been in interesting times lately. And so my mom noticed, she said, you know, your nurture-ometer is starting to seem a little low. <laughs> you know, yeah. do you still have anything left to give? And speaking personally for my family and my children and my husband, and, uh, you know, what are you doing to refill your nurture-ometer? Um, you know, what do you do when your nurture-ometer gets low on behalf of, of yourself for your church, for your congregation. And this is where the counterintuitive answer is do less. Right. This is where works righteousness doesn't work. Right. One of the classes I took in seminary because I flunked Bonhoeffer um, was pastoral ethics, uh, which is, was a wonderful class. Not wonderful that I had to take it because I flunked Bonhoeffer. But uh, wonderful because it was a useful class. And one of the pastors that like was invited in, and I should remember her name and I don't, uh, but she was a pastor who had followed a major clergy uh, sexual impropriety. Um, it was one of those like, you know, child pornography found on Oof. the church computer belonging to the pastor. Yikes. And... Uh, horrific for the church and the community and the children and all of it, really bad. And so this woman got brought in to deal with it, right? Deal with this new desolate Jerusalem uh, that had been created. And what she said is, uh, for the first couple of years, I worked six hours a day only, and then I went home. She just straight up didn't work eight hours a day. Because she couldn't. It was too... Uh, she bought it. She bought a new office chair, um, and she only worked uh, six hours a day, and was just straight up about it. I only worked yep. about six hours a day because anything more was too intense, um, and uh, I had to maintain something in reserve. And so I only worked for six hours a day. And yeah. that's I, I don't always practice this, but that's really tremendous advice. I do sometimes where like my cup is empty, I just go home and take a nap. Yep. I just like I, I call it declaring work bankruptcy. I declare work bankruptcy um, and I go home and I take a nap and I don't explain it and I don't make up the hours. I just go home and I take a nap um, and I try to clear my stinking head, um, you know, or I pull a Don Draper and I take myself, go to the movies by myself. Um, yeah. Right. And I, so for me, like, you know, a squishy Nothing squishy works for me. And so squishy self-care practice is about like, you know, oh, I'm going to get up and I'm going to like have picturesque coffee by myself. And like, no, that's none of like, it. you know, none of my self-care is going to make it on Instagram. Uh, but like, <laughs> but like one of the things is like from from that woman's advice was like, 
Uh, and and the other thing she said, and this is a thing that's come up on the show before, but anytime we talk about self-care, um, if you think it's wasting time, you're wrong, uh, in part because you're going to be better able than to deal with the desolate Jerusalem, and also you're going to be better at resisting temptation. Yes. Um, and this is not 100% true, but often in those moments of uh, clergy impropriety or congregational impropriety. Um, it is, uh, you ask what their self-care practices were and they weren't. And they didn't have them. Right. And when you don't care for yourself, you cannot care for others. It's not there. Um, right. yeah, I, <laughs> I, I had that same, you know, only working for six hours, work less, do less. Yeah. Uh, my husband asked me recently what I wanted for Christmas and I looked at him and said, uh, nap. A nap, yeah. A, a nap. Like, I, yeah. when you're just too tired, it's time yeah. to sit down and take a nap. But this is scriptural, too, right? There are times when prophets got overwhelmed with everything and said, oh, Lord, I wish yeah, I would so, die. Yeah, we did, yeah, we did the Isaiah text. <laughs> We've done the Isaiah text relatively recently, right? Right. Um, Where you just, or the Elijah, just Elijah text. Elijah or like, text, right. Or, or Jesus sometimes just leaves. You just need a nap. Right. Or there's a storm going on and Jesus just takes a nap in the boat. He's just and sleeping like, in the boat. Yeah. Some, sometimes like, you just need a nap. Like, you know, I, I, and I that's have, okay. I, you know, I've often said that maybe Jesus is an introvert and people look at me funny. He was like, yeah, but he's constantly trying to be by alone. himself. Yeah, it never works out. Sometimes you just need alone time. Even Jesus, and this was, you know, like again, all all this advice that maybe I follow, maybe I don't. But like you know, the story of my my mentor pastor of you know reminding me as a teenager that like you are not Jesus, which that part I you know I unlike the members of the Righteous Gemstones was never under any impression um, <laughs> that you know unlike Kelvin Gemstone was never under any impression that I was Jesus, uh, but I certainly seemed interested in working harder than he did, right? Which and, and burning had, the candle at both ends, right? We're all so bad at it. Yeah. We're all so but, bad at it. But it is that like and and you know. My advice on self-care is is not like your five easy steps to be self-care because like I am not – you give me an adult coloring book and I'm going to th- – it will sit on a shelf. Like this is just not the things that are going to work for me. Uh, and so right. I, I, not, my prescriptive advice is – But kudos is, to you if that is the thing that works Find the like, thing that works. Find the thing that works but also f- much like working out – Find the thing that you can actually do. Because this, this is the thing I get really bad at. I have all these grand dreams. And this is true. I have all these grand dreams that I am going to have a worship experience on a regular basis that I myself am not leading. Right? Yeah. You and I went years where every worship service we attended together at least one of us was working it. Was in charge of some part of the service. Yeah. I remember the first time that yeah. we weren't both working a right. service and we were sitting down going, wait, this, this is, is the first time we've ever done. It was years. Year, years. Years yeah, it was like doing ministry together. Three, finally... four years in that you and I attended a worship service together. That, that we were not in charge of anything. That either I wasn't leading or you were leading or often it's 
both of you know most right. of our worship experience together is you know whether I'm on stage and you're on stream or we're both on stage or right. whatever. Um, and so years in, we finally attended a worship service together. That not it was a you know it was a bizarre room. experience. It was so strange. It was, was like, like wait. What did we forget? Right. It was, you know, <laughs> Aren't we like, supposed to be doing something? No. I am used to standing next to you in a worship context, but we're usually on the stage. Right. I was really weird. It was um, bizarre. And so I always had these grand dreams. My grand, my version of Instagram self-care is I want a worship service that I attend that I'm not running. Right. But I never, like, I, you know, I've, I've tried, right? But, like, obviously I can't on Sunday morning. Right. When most worship services are. And Sunday evening, I'm with my family, and that's also self-care. And so, like, like not having family time is bad. And right. then for a while, the Episcopal Cathedral has a noon Eucharist. And so I was able to go that for a while. But then, like, Wednesdays, anyways, like, it never worked out. And so what I had to realize is, like, this is just not, like... This is just not a thing I'm going to be able to do. I've got to find and got to be another way yeah. because that's my grand dream. And it just doesn't, that is not like either I'm lazy, which we can always enter into the equation. Um, but it's also just, it's not a thing I can consistently sustain mm-hmm. in the same way that like going to a gym is not a thing that I have managed to contain. And partly it's because I don't want to shower at the gymnasium. Um, and so I, I, I became a runner because the joy of running is you just tie on your running shoes and you go. Right. Right. That's it. There's no like gym bag. Do I have soap? Do I pack deodorant? Do I need to pack the clothes I'm going to wear for the day? Like all of that. Beyond the fact that you need to lift weights next to people who are all grunting loudly, it wasn't even that. It is the the <laughs> just utter like I didn't need another logistics challenge. What I need is the thing where I could just tie on my running shoes and go. And right. that I finally found a consistent workout routine, which is part of self care, right? Um, when I let go of the concept of going to a gym. And instead just realized, like, as kind of boring as it is, I am just going to cover miles in order to not die. That is the pure whatever, is I am going to go miles so that I don't die. I will drop my kid off at daycare, and then I will, I'm already out of the house, I already have my running shoes on, I will go run, and then I will shower at home like a human. It was, the, it's the showering. It's the, it's, it is, it is the like, I, you know, cause you know, anyways, yeah. I, I can't make it to worship and I can't make it to the gym, but right. I can go for a run because logistically I can manage to do it consistently. Yes. But that is the self-care routine that works for you. I have met an incredible number of cycling pastors mm. Recently, cycling yeah. seems to be the other one, um, but some yeah. form of get out of the office and move, um, which right. is good because we work in what could be a very stationary job. As well, a very well. stationary job where you have to be somewhat of a professional eater. Right. Right? Like we yes. eat professionally. I Who was it that gave up eating at meetings for Lent? Yeah. Was it that's you who great. told me that story? No, but I, I need I, to do that. It was that. a United Methodist pastor because he said at every meeting it was a potluck. It was they had donuts, yeah. they had coffee, they had a snack, they had something. And he said, I just yeah. gave that up for Lent one year, just eating at meetings, not yeah. eating altogether, just at our church function meetings. 
and lost so much weight. He was well, like, I, I realized what that was doing to my health. Well, mine was I realized I could avoid eating dinner at home. Not in this job as much, but in previous iterations of my life. I could avoid eating at home essentially ever. And so I stopped eating at evening functions. I would go to the <laughs> Lions Club. This is Lexington, Texas, and so you had to go to the Lions Club. Um, and apparently, the point of the Lions Club was to eat the meal, and I was just there for the meeting part. Um, like, you're not eating? I was like, no. A, I don't want to eat chicken fried steak. It's not my jam. And also, I'm going to eat at home with my spouse. Right. And that is another, like, again, but it is, I, I think... Part of if I've learned anything about self care and, and and you know, it is f- don't have grand dreams. Right. Think about what can you do consistently. Right. right. So for me, like running, um, right. that works. Uh, family dinners. Family dinners. Right. Family like, dinners I block, is a big I, one in our house too. I block off. Uh, I I try not to work on Saturdays. I, I definitely don't work on Friday. I work very rarely on Fridays and try not to work on Saturdays. And that sounds like really obvious. Have a weekend. But in this right. job, you could easily never have a weekend. Right. Um, easily. Right. I used to do prison ministry. Um, and so the prep meetings for that was on a Saturday. And it was like, it was ludicrous. It was like, we're going to prep for like six Saturdays. And I'm like, uh. and I stopped because I realized right. like, oh, that's my only shared day off with like my family. So you know, but, but it and, is, and we preach Sabbath time. Yeah. We preach it from the pulpit, yeah. and we are the worst at keeping it sometimes. <laughs> but know? I, but part of the link I want to make here is this is part of how you sustain when you feel like you're in a desolate Jerusalem. Yes, right. Like because you're going to feel the things that our friends here in Isaiah 64 are going to feel. You're going to feel them, right? Because all ministry be like this sometimes. And so much of ministry is restart, launch, rebuild, whatever work now. And that is particularly, you know, when, you know, whatever I've talked about on the show before, when you manage to cut the membership of the church by 50% in nine months, right? And they all break up with you on the way out the door and tell you it's, you know, you, not them. Like, that's going to be bad. And part of how you maintain that hope is is self-care, is and is finding the, like, the actual things that way that will you can do consistently because I know a lot of people that have like all you know all these grand plans of and and I and I'm guilty of this right all these grand plans of like oh yeah I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do this it's gonna be great and they do it yeah. for like this is me and meal prepping I have given up on I am never going to be a meal prepper I am <laughs> never going to be a person that like cooks like batch cooks a bunch of things. To then, nope, because on Sunday evening when you're supposed to do that, I want to be a garbage human and just, like, hang out. And fall asleep. Sunday afternoon nap. Right, right, exactly. Um, I had the first Sunday afternoon nap in weeks um, this past Sunday. And then Sunday evening, I was a model of productivity. It was amazing. It was transformational. I also had a coffee mixed with espresso. But that we're not going to, we're going to ignore that part. 
<laughs> coffee does not count as self-care trait. I mean, your coffee addiction does not count. Not, no, as no, but, self-care. No, but so the, here's the, the here's the dastardly part of the coffee <laughs> addiction thing, though. Coffee shops do count as self-care. I am yes. love part of the coffee thing is I love coffee shops. Yeah. Now I also just. Love coffee is the wrong word. Need coffee is, you know, perhaps the right Mainline word. Mainline uh, coffee. Right. I yeah. Mean, it's, it's just, you get, just get it. You just need a central my, line to tap body, it in. Get in my body. Um, because, anyway, the, you know, it yeah. is that, like, don't have grand dreams. Do be the real. simple everyday things that you know you can be consistent with. Right, because if it's all like, oh, you know, I'll feel great when I go on vacation. Like, yeah, you will. And like, yeah. you know, oh, that's the other one. Um, uh, I think we've said this in the show before. Use all of your vacation days. Yeah. Use, if, you, if your job provides you vacation days, use them all. Or I a was, sabbatical when needed. Yeah, when needed. That is a thing that your conference can provide for you. <laughs> I was having lunch with a friend of mine and... They were like, yeah, no, I've got all this leave stored up and I, I, I wanted to flip the table or a, a relative a family member, you know, bragged that they, you know, in like a 25 year career for the government had never taken a vacation day. And I'm just like, hey, that's just you're just giving your employer free money, by the way. You're right. just giving your employer free money. Maybe don't uh, do that. So maybe don't do that. Uh, but beyond that, what? No, no. Right. use it. So my, my husband's work system, they are uh, fundamentally understaffed. And so all of the vacation time and the leave time and the sick time and the things that they have accrued, all of their accrued time, uh, none of them ever get approved for because they can't <laughs> afford to let the people go um, because they are essential workers. Yeah. And so they are talking about instead giving them a 13th paycheck in the year. I'm oh, just gosh. cutting them a check for all well, of the. I'm like, they're going to bankrupt themselves giving well, them a check for all of this accrued time off. I mean, but, thanks for the check, but like. But like yeah. also maybe be able to take your time off because right. you deserve it and you need it. And in hard and difficult places to work in that are con- consistently desolate. In your desolate Jerusalems. Yeah. You need to be able to take a break, step back, and refocus so that because you can't give from an empty cup. I know it's a silly cliche, but if you are empty, you cannot give what you need to give and you can't perform at your higher, you know, functioning levels. And and so this is where Christmas comes in, weirdly. Right. <laughs> so one of the thing one of the like theological arguments of why you should pull out all the stops at Christmas is in part to interject joy into the middle time that can feel like being in the desolate Jerusalem to give that like, um, one of the arguments is like, oh, you should just live the same way all year round. We shouldn't even have Christmas. We should just always be like so holy. And like, yeah, you should always be holy. Absolutely. But also, by having this like deliberate joyous season that you look for, and, you know, and I dump on Christmas and I make fun of Christmas as having a better marketing department than, uh, than Easter, when in fact Easter is the bigger deal. You'll hear this joke again. I guarantee it. It's my favorite joke. Uh, but also, Christmas 
is like a Sabbath for the year. Will you take a break from some of your more serious forms of self-care and uh, invest in more frivolous forms of self-care? And so I was driving through uh, my parents' neighborhood. Um, You know those uh, 10-foot-tall Home Depot uh, skeletons? Yes. Um, So these people have two of them still in their yard, (laughs) now decorated for Christmas. With Santa hats on? Yeah, with like lights in the chest. Beautiful. With like Christmas, like glowing orbs of Christmas light in the chest cavity of of, of these giant giant skeletons. That is joyous, right? (laughs) This is where, like, as long as you frame it in... In a the- still a theology, it's not like, hey, give the retailers your money because the retailers need it. You know, this right. is currently an ad free podcast, and so you will not now hear a ad for Casper mattresses or Alienware computers. But like, it is injecting that in some ways artificially, right? We we don't have to, you know, Christ was already born. We don't need to re- we don't need to celebrate it every year. He he was born, like. You know, um, but also it is injecting a little bit of joy into this fundamentally middle season between into the ordinary time, <laughs> into the like middle time between the gift of salvation and the gift of the spirit and Christ's final victory at the end of time. Yes. Right. And so, you know, um, I'm not saying bankrupt yourself. In fact, I'm saying don't. Uh, but also, if you happen to have a 10 foot skeleton, roll it out. Stick some Christmas lights in its vacant chest cavity. Find your joy, people. Put a Santa hat on that thing. (laughs) Put an inflatable Santa Claus on the back of it as if it is giving that Santa a piggyback. (laughs) I need to find this image somewhere. I'm sure someone has done it. Or if not, we can make an image, AI image generator, make that image. I feel like it needs to exist. Santa Claus being given a piggyback by a 10 foot tall light up skeleton. It should happen. So if you have the skeleton, go make it happen, people. As we go into Advent, it is a time of self care. It is a way to help us through this middle time and remember the joy of God even in a world that can seem, and a job, and a church world, and my dust ball of a studio that can seem so desolate. If you have other self-care practices that have worked for you, um, by all means, we are not the experts. Uh, uh, We are, uh, I especially, um, as I've talked about often, am a horrific offender in this regard. Um, Email us, thegoodnessofgodpod at gmail.com. That is thegoodnessofgodpod at gmail.com. If you enjoy this show, and this is your only interaction uh, with us, uh, there are other things we put out into the world. You can hear sermons. Uh, Our video game show will come back at some point, just not yet. There will be TikToks, amazing TikToks going live uh, very soon. So there is a lot more that happens here in the Servants Now uh, Media Lab um, at Servants of Christ United Methodist Parish. So just look us up uh, at Servants Now on... uh, as many things as possible other than Twitter. We also have that Twitter, but 
I'm not going there. It's a bad place. Um, <laughs> TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, the internet, servantsnow.org. Um, all of that has a bunch of stuff from us. And so uh, go there. Um, everything we do here was also made possible, is also made possible by a generous grant by the, uh, tech, the Texas Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church called their Innovators Grant. It's what built this studio a year ago um, and has let us do this and the things that we plan for uh, in the years to come. Um, and so we will be back next week. So go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.